0: So correction is not based on Hebrews 11, it's based on the whole book of Hebrews. Uh, Please open your books, your Bibles now to Hebrews 11, uh, 1,283. Our text will be verses 13 to 16, that's what we'll be focusing on this evening. But again, for context sake, we will be reading starting at verse 1 of chapter 11. Page 1283. Starting in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, and by commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, not, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And this next chunk, verses 13 to 16, constitute what we will be focusing on this evening. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. As far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing upon it. Again, I would like to pray before we begin. God and Father, bless us now by your spirit. Bless those who hear your word with ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to embrace, the glories of your gospel. Lord, give me, your servant, uh, the words to speak, power to speak them well, to speak them passionately. God, give me energy, as we are near the end of this day, Lord, give me the energy and the wisdom and the power to be your spokesman at this time. God, we pray this through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we begin this evening, I would really like us to try to get ourselves in the world of the text to put our feet on the ground to feel the dust between our toes so to speak as you see the context of the original audience the context of these hebrew believers is very important for us to see how this passage is for us today why did this author write these words to these people in this place at this time and how in the world could a passage written to these people in this place and in this time be applied to us, who are in this place and this time? So I want us to, want us to get into the world of the text. Our audience, our original audience, understand that they were believers through and through. But they, they, they underwent an, a radical shift in their faith. You see, they lived lived in the time in which Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, and Jesus ascended into heaven. They were there before he came, and they were there after he came. And the book of Hebrews calls them God-fearing Jews, meaning that before Jesus did all his amazing work, they believed and were faithful to the Old Testament. They were faithful to the old covenant that God had placed on them, on Mount Sinai, when he gave them the law. They were good, God-believing believers. Not Christians yet, because Christ hasn't done his work yet. But the point is, that they were God-fearing Jews, doing all that they were supposed to do, living in good relationship with their God, and then Christ came, and then Christ died, and did all of his amazing work, and then they made their very wise and correct transition to now be Christians. To move away from the old covenant and now come into the new covenant, believing in Christ, believing that their salvation comes only by the blood of Christ, by grace alone. So, if you put to yourselves in their experience, you can just at this moment imagine the, the major change that would have had on their lives. And not only that, but as they were God fearing Jews, they were accepted by their community. They were accepted even by the Roman Empire who was ruling over the land at that time. Everything was good. There was peace. It's all good. But then when they made the, the right and proper transition to be Christians, to believe in Jesus Christ as their only Savior, they were persecuted for it. They were mocked. They were reviled. They were beaten. They were put in prison. They were the kind of people that when other people saw them, they would tell their kids to be like, no, come closer to me, don't, don't go near those those Christians. They're atheists, because they only believe in one God. They're, they're uh, what's the word? Uh, they're cannibals, because they do the Lord's Supper. Don't, stay away from them, they're, they're dangerous. And not only that, their own... Previous brothers and sisters, the Jews who remained in the Old Covenant, who did not make that wise and proper transition into being Christians, they mocked them, and they ridiculed them, and they persecuted them. And so now all of a sudden, these people who were at peace in their hometowns now felt like strangers and hated strangers. Can you imagine the confusion that must be for them? And so these Christians, as our author today, and and our author throughout the whole book, sees the problem now. Because these Christians are tempted to return back to their old covenant ways. They're tempted to return to the Old Testament. They're tempted to return to their belief system before Christ came. Because... They were still in in good relationship with God. They were still at peace with their society. Everything was good, so why not return? And our passage this morning encourages them not to do that. Don't return to what you've done before. Don't go back to the Old Covenant. The book of Hebrews, not in our passage but throughout, offers some of the most intense warning passages in all of the Bible. Warning passage that says, if you return back to, to what the old covenant was, there is no chance of repentance. But not only does it offer the most intense warnings, or some of the most intense warnings, it also offers some of the most amazing comforts and encouragement as we see in our passage today. An encouragement to not go back to what you had before, because what you have now is so much better. So much better. And so as we saw in Psalm 33 too, our our author offers two paths. The path of faith, which continues in the path that they have transitioned into, a path that believes in Jesus, or a path of returning back, a path of the world, to find your hope, to find your security in something that you've already been doing, but also now won't give you any hope. It is much better to persevere. It's much better to remain on this path of faith. And the same is for us today. It is much better, even in the face of the persecution that we might receive, it's even better in the face of the the mocking that we might receive, as we talked about even this morning, than to choose the path of the world that might even mean greater peace in life, more prosperity in life. And so the theme that I want us to focus on this afternoon is this. Live by faith, ever looking to the homeland prepared by your God. Live by faith, ever looking to the homeland prepared by your God. And we'll be looking at this in three points. One, live by faith. Two, look to the better country. And three, long to be with God. So one, live by faith. Two, look to a better country. And three, long to be with God. So let's dive in. Point number one, live by faith. Please look with me at verse 13. These all died in faith. Who are the these? Who are the these? Now, some commentators um, like to say that it's everybody that we just read about. So that would be Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, but, more commentaries, and I think this is right, that these are referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob particularly. There are, many, there are many parallels between verses 8 and 12 and verses 13 and 16. We don't have quite enough time to go through them this afternoon, but I, I, I encourage you to look at those connections on your own time. So these are referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, otherwise known as the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel. Now, what does it mean that they died in faith? Now, to know what faith is, we need to look at verse 1. Hebrews' definition of what faith is. So please look at verse 1 with me. This is a definition that the author of Hebrews gives us of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And now you might say, but wait a second, Eric. Faith is conviction of things not seen. Our passage says that they saw them having seen them and greeted them from afar. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that they didn't actually see them. No, we're talking about eyes of faith. That they so trusted in the promises of God that it is as if they could see their fruition, their fulfillment. And they lived in light of the promises of God coming true. Again, this is a lot of overlap with what we talked about this morning, that the future reality of the promises of God coming true dictate the way in which we live our lives now. They are convicted by the fulfillment of the promises of God made to them. It implies that they died, by by saying that they died in faith, it implies that they also lived by faith. They lived according to the reality that God's promises would indeed come true. What promises did God God give these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs? Well, he promised that that he would be their God and that they would be his people. He promised that he would bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey, otherwise known as a land of great prosperity. He promised that their descendants would be as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. He promises a great many glorious things. And they live by this faith. They live by the promises of God. If you look back in Genesis, from chapter 12 at the calling of Abraham, pretty much all the way to the end, it is actually quite astounding how often the patriarchs repeat the promises of God. It's in many of the chapters that Abraham repeats, repeats, Isaac repeats, repeats, Jacob repeats, repeats what God has promised them. Reminding themselves, reminding their own children of the promises that God has given them and that they should live in accordance to that promise. Now this isn't me just unhelpfully repeating what we talked about this morning. This is just showing us that this reality, this truth of allowing the future to affect the way that we live now is not just in one passage. But this truth is throughout all of the New Testament, all of Scripture, that the future fulfillment of God's promises ought to affect us now. The author, as we saw this morning even, is reorienting his audience's perspective to to this future reality. And you can even understand why this is so important. Right? For this original audience, their reality, their current circumstance is persecution. And so why not go back to to a belief that they weren't persecuted for? seems pretty logical but this author our author tonight is saying no don't do that because you're not living in the proper reality You're not living according to the proper circumstances you need to live according to that god is going to fulfill every single one of the promises that he has made to you and if you turn back now you're going to miss out on it all don't go back don't go down that path continue on the path of faith Looking to the better country, point number two. Looking to the better country, verses 14 to 16a. For people who speak thus, or people who speak this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And now we're seeing what our author is doing. He's given them a choice of two paths. The path of faith, trusting in the promises of God, or the path of the world, the path of the wicked, the path of the unrighteous, that goes back to where they've been before. Think of what this means for the original audience, right? Again, if they went back, yes, they would, they would find peace, they would find tranquility, they would find a, a lack of persecution, but at the same time, they would miss out on Christ, the old testament the old covenant all it's doing is pointing every single one of those old testament believers to jesus christ who is the fulfillment of all the promises made in the old testament jesus christ has come jesus christ has fulfilled all of those old testament promises so if they return they're going back in time to a time where jesus didn't die for them And if they're going back to a time that Jesus didn't die for them, then they don't get saved. They don't go to heaven. They don't go to that better country. They go to hell. But, if they look with eyes of faith, then they get a better country. And they are encouraged to look to that better country. Now at this point, you might be saying to yourself, Okay, Eric, I get it, I get it. But what does this really have to do with us? This is, this is cool and all that for this original audience, but how does this reality check actually have an effect on how we live our lives? What does it mean for us? Well, let me, let me ask you this, young people in speci- specifically, just as an example. Many of you are in a, a transition time in your life. Maybe you're in high school, maybe you're just out of high school, but you're thinking about very important things. Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to do for the rest of my life? Very important questions to ask. And this distinct worldview, this distinct reality of looking ahead to a better country, looking with eyes of faith, is going to dictate the way that you choose even a job. What are you looking for in a job? Something that's going to give you lots of money. You, know, you can even coat that in, 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 in goodness. I need lots of money so I can take care of a family. That's good. I want to use my gifts that I have. Again, that's good. I want to do something that I would really think that I would enjoy. Again, that's good. But let me ask you this. How is that different than the world? The world wants all those things. The world wants money. The world wants to do something that they like to do. And the world wants to do something they're good at. This is a very natural human thing to want. So how is it, how are you different as a Christian? Because understand that these two paths, a path that looks ahead in faith and a path that looks back in unbelief, they are completely opposite. They go in different directions. Forward. Backwards. And so how is your choice of what job you want going to be different from the world? Well, eyes that look ahead in faith want a job that they can glorify God through. And so that, that, that involves... Doing a job that you have gifting for, because God has given you these gifts, as we've talked about this morning, and he gives you the strength to to use those gifts for his glory. But is that part of the main thing that you're looking for in a job? What can I do to glorify God? What can I do to give pleasure to God? What can I do that will bring me even closer to God? And will I even choose a job that might give me less money, but will give me more opportunity to share my faith? Maybe this sounds too idealistic, but this is how this worldview can all, can drastically change the way that you see your own life. What's the purpose for which you were made? What's the purpose for which you were born? Why did God put you on this earth to live for Him, to, to spread His kingdom, to give glory to His name? Or I could I could ask this: if in if you in this church. If an elder were to follow each and every one of you on your day to day life, going to work, going to school, how you treat your family, what you do in your free time, if an elder followed you and watched closely everything that you did, would they see a life that is different in the world? Would there be something distinctly different about the way in which you do business? Would there be something distinctly different by the way that you raise your kids and the way that the world raises their kids or the, world that, or the way that the world does business? I was a landscaper for many years, and I, and I worked for a Christian boss, praise the Lord, but I also interacted with many unbelieving bosses. And there's a, there's a world of difference between how a Christian landscaper runs his business versus how an unbelieving landscaper runs his business. Even for the simple thing of taxes, an unbeliever is going to Can, not always Common grace is a thing But an unbeliever might do all that they can To skirt taxes Oh, I only take cash I don't take checks I don't take e-transfers I just take cash Whereas a Christian will say No, no, no Give to Caesar what is Caesar's I'm not living my life According to the world, I'm living my life with the eyes of faith. According to the glory of God, according to the purpose for which I was made. So I'm going to be honest with my finances. I'm going to be honest with how I'm paid and how I how I talk about my taxes. This reality does change the way that you live. It does. And being this heavenly minded, being this, having this perspective doesn't, Shirk you from having a meaningful life or a joyful life. No, it gives you the most meaningful life you can possibly have. Because it's the way, it's the purpose for which God has made you. God didn't make you to be self indulgent. God didn't make you to do everything for your own good and for your own benefit. No, God made you for His glory. And as we talked about this morning, God made you for the benefit of His own people, for the benefit of each other. This reality does change the way that we live. And that brings us to our third point, long to be with God. And this is more of a, of a deep motivation for why we would live in this way, why we would have this f- forward-looking, faith-oriented perspective, that we would long to be with God. And we're going to look at the same verses just with, through, this, through these lines. So let me read those verses again. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I ask you this question, brothers and sisters. What does our text, what is the one thing our text wants us to strive after? To reach for. What is the prize of our text? We might say faith. Faith is the prize. After all, this chapter, chapter 11, we call the hall of faith. Faith must be the thing that we are called to strive after in our passage. But it's not. And if it was, that would sell our passage way too short. Faith is not the ultimate prize. Is it a better place? Is that what our passage is talking about? I want you this author is talking to, these, to this original audience, I want you to strive ultimately after a better country. No, that can't be it either. That's not good enough. That's not, that's not enough. So what does our passage say? Well, it says that they did receive a homeland. No, they, sorry. It says that they didn't receive a homeland. But how could that be? If you know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did go to Canaan. They did go to the promised land. But yet they did not receive the things promised. Now part of that is because they didn't get to own the land themselves. They were sojourning in tents. They were pilgrims. They were moving here to there. But there was also more that God promised them that they didn't yet receive. God promised them, again, that better country, prosperity, that land of milk and honey. Yes, but is that the ultimate thing that God promised them? Prosperity? Is that the message of today? That... If we believe in Jesus Christ, we will be offered prosperity. Come, believe in Jesus, you will be healthy and wealthy. That sounds pretty good to me. But again, that is cheap. That's a cheap prize. That's not nearly good enough. God is not that stingy to offer us merely health and wealth. And it wouldn't even make sense. Why would God offer Abraham prosperity? Abraham was rich. Abraham was very rich. So why would it be even intriguing for Abraham to leave his home where he established his wealth, his finances, and move to a place that he's never been just to live in tents? It can't be prosperity. What did God promise them? What was the thing that they strove after? What was the prize of our passage? What's the prize of this original audience? To be with their god i will be your god and you will be my people that is the promise that the patriarchs looked ahead to but did not yet receive yes we believe in the omniscience of god yes we believe that god is ever present with us but the temple had not yet been made god's presence had not yet been with his people and so they continue to look with eyes of faith to that day where Jesus would be with them, that he would be their God and that they would be their people. It is not a place that they're looking for. It is a relationship. It is not about the place. It is about being with God in that place. And again, this is so important for this original audience. If they go back to the old covenants, everything that they've been looking forward to for the last thousands of years because of the old covenants, they would miss out on. Because we are truly with God, and God is truly with us because of Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross, because Jesus tore that dividing wall so that the Holy of Holies is now open for us all, that we can come into his presence in prayer and singing and thanksgiving. It's because of Jesus. And if you go back to a system, to an old covenant system, without Jesus in it, without Jesus dying in it, I mean... And you miss out on the fulfillment of everything that you've been waiting for. And us, if we, sh- we need to strive after God, faith is not an end to itself, but faith is merely the instrument in which we receive God. We are not saved by faith in and of itself. We are saved by Jesus through faith. Jesus saved us. And if we don't look to Jesus with eyes of faith, then we too miss out on everything that we hope and desire. We miss out on it all. And not only do we miss out on it all, but as even th- Psalm 37 told us, we will perish. We will be cut off from the promises of God. We will be coven- cut off from being in covenant with God. Only through eyes of faith, only through Jesus Christ, only through this new way, this new covenant, can we be with God. And that's exactly what our passage says. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is heaven. No, it doesn't say heaven because they're not looking ultimately to a place. It says a heavenly one. And not heavenly like you would call a nice piece of apple pie. No, heavenly because God is there. Heaven is the dwelling place of God, and if a place is heavenly, it is God indwelt. They're looking forward to a place that is heavenly. And that's why this phrase, this last phrase, is so glorious, is so. Comforting. In fact, I would even argue that this is one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. How can that be? How can God not be ashamed to be called called our God? Think of these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think of their whole line, Israel. God promised them that he would be their God and that they would be his people, and he kept that promise. He did. But yet, these Israelites scorn the name of the Lord left, right, and center. I'm reading the book of Judges in my personal devotions right now, and it is uncanny how quickly the people of Israel turn away from the Lord and go after their own gods, go after their own desires... And God is ashamed. So ashamed that he brings punishment upon them. He is their God, yes. He is faithful to his promise, but he is ashamed to be called their God. In fact, he even says to Moses in the book of Exodus that I regret choosing these people. I'm also reading through First Samuel with my wife for family devotions. And we just read recently too of how God allowed the Philistines to just totally demolish Israel. 34,000 people died. 34,000. And what's so striking about that passage is that God isn't even mentioned. Israel is so self centered, Israel is so self focused, Israel is so not looking with eyes of faith that God just lets them be destroyed. He is their God, but He is oftentimes ashamed. And so this author is saying to these Christians don't go back. Because if you keep going forward, if you keep persevering, if you keep looking with eyes of faith, God will not be ashamed to be called your God. Do we see the comfort in this in our own lives? That God isn't only our God, but He is not ashamed. He is joyous to be called your God. Now, I mentioned this morning that I was part of uh, an accountability group in my high school and university days, an amazing group. Um, And the hardest part of the group, I think, for me, wasn't even confession of sin, as painful as that was. It wasn't even hearing my good brothers fail in their sin. But it was, see... Sorry, But it was seeing their tears as they didn't believe that God loved them. Because of the way that they sinned, because of the way that they kept failing in their sexual sin, they could not believe that God continued to love them. That he, yes, saved them by the blood of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, but that he was ashamed of them. That looked down on them Not with a smile, but with disappointment. But that is not what the Bible says. And when we fail, when we sin, when we choose to go down a path, that we have already been before, when we choose a sin that we have committed over and over and over again because we think it will finally give us some sort of satisfaction, some sort of lasting pleasure. When we go back that way, we still have forgiveness in Jesus. We still have forgiveness in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, so much so that God is unashamed to be called your God. And again, I ask you, how is that possible? You know the sin in your own heart. I know the sin in my own heart. How is God not ashamed? Is it because we have faith? Just in and of itself? Is it because we look ahead in the eyes of faith? Looking forward to a better country in and of itself? None of that would mean anything without Jesus Christ. God is not ashamed to be called our God because God was ashamed of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Christ was hanging on that cross, when Jesus, the Son of God, was hanging on that cross, the innocent one, the righteous one, our sins covered him. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you ashamed of me? That you would turn your back on me? So that by that, God would not be ashamed of you. Jesus Christ suffered not only hell, the wrath of God, but suffered the shame of his own father so that you and I with confidence and with trust and with faith know that God loves to be called our God. He is filled with joy to be called our God. So what path will you choose? path of faith that looks to Jesus as the author and perfecter of the faith. And the end of that path is life. At the end of that path is being with God. Or are you going to choose the path of the world? The path of the wicked? The path of the unrighteous? The path that goes back to where you've been before? die. Choose a path of faith. Choose it. Live by it. Let it affect your very existence. Do that and you will find joy. Do that and you will find perseverance. But also remember the words of Christ that we are to count the cost of choosing this path. This original audience is not promised anywhere in this book by this author that if they continue down the path of faith that their lives will get better. He doesn't promise them that they will find peace in this life. He doesn't promise them that the persecution will end. In fact, it is implied that the persecution is going to get worse. Count the cost of following Jesus. Count the cost of walking down this path of faith, because there is a big difference. Jesus says that if you follow me, if you pick up your cross and follow me, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. Because the world persecuted me, it will also persecute you. But... The trials and the discomforts and the pain of this life are not worth comparing to the glories that are to come. This better country that we are looking forward to, this heavenly country, this country in which we will be with our God and our God will be with us, outshines our pain more than we can even imagine. Because not only did Jesus die for us, but he also rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us now, caring for us now, pleading our cause before the Father now. And he is coming again, bringing this city which has been prepared for you. Jesus Christ is coming back with this city so that when he comes back... Those of us who put our faith in Jesus, walk down this path, will live and dwell with our God forever and ever in perfect joy, in perfect peace, no more persecution, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. But God will be our God and we will be his people for everlasting. This audience... And we today are encouraged to persevere because of that future hope, that future glory of being with God. Let's pray. God and Father, oh Lord, we long to be in your presence. Lord, in this life, we do face persecution, not to the extent, perhaps, as this original audience, and not to the extent of our brothers and sisters around the world, but God, we do face persecution. We do face mockery. We do face a culture that looks down upon us, calls us bigots, calls us hateful, calls us intolerant. And Lord, we confess that sometimes it is tempting to just keep our mouths shut, to just live below the radar so we may get get on with our business in a peaceful and uninterrupted way. But God, that is not truly living on the path of faith. That is not truly living with our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Jesus. But God, we confess, too, that we so often fail at this. We so often choose the easy route instead of following Jesus. We so often do this, Lord. But even these failings are paid for and forgiven by the blood of Christ. And we know, too, that even that left to our own strength, we would never be able to do any of these things. But again, we pray for your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to live in this way, to live in light of the better, the heavenly country where we may be with you who is not ashamed to be called our God. Uh, Comfort us by this truth. Enliven us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.